Welcome back, everyone. It's time for another session of Maya or My Yoga Audio. And I met today's guest, Femily, about two years ago at Creative Mornings in Sacramento. And for those of you out there who don't know about Creative Mornings, you need to look it up. This is an amazing community of global chapters dedicated to creativity and supporting makers, dreamers, writers, and just people making waves all over the world for free. And right now, like everything else, their events are all virtual, but so very worth it. The in-person events that they have are normally held monthly, and they've been like a dose of therapy for me each time. I've said this before on my social feeds and from speakers you know and love within your region to being able to give hugs and high fives to your friends and meeting new friends and new people from all over the world, not just in Sacramento. So there is always something to learn and to love about Creative Mornings. So to me, it's only fitting that this is where I met Femily, also known as Silicon Valley's Gender Equity Advisor. And how we met is even better. I discovered that she was the artist who was making live drawings each month of the speakers at Creative Mornings. And I was so delighted to discover she had made one of me when I was part of the Audience Takes the Stage event in December of 2018. And that was one of the most exciting days of my life, hands down. And the fact that she took the time, the effort, and the pen to paper to recognize the moment meant so much to me. And we later met up in the parking lot, and she just expressed this kind of excitement about my talk and my upcoming book and being published. And she was just bursting with generosity. And I sort of felt like we were already best friends somehow. And we have kept in touch. And I discovered that there is so much more that is exciting to know about Emily Megan Morrow Howe, also known as Femily. And her bio on Instagram reads, I equip feminists, queer trans fam, plus non-binary folks of all colors to kick ass in tech, consulting, and new world thought leadership. Femily, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> and thank you so much for being here. Oh, Megan, thank you so much. I still, you really just brought me back to that day when I saw you in the parking lot and I was like a raving fan, like those Beatles fans who were crying their eyes out in the front row in the 60s. And you gave me your book and I devoured it in a day and handed it immediately to my sister who also devoured it in a day. And it's really been a book that has anchored us in our house for the past three to four years. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And it really, it got us really thinking and feeling and going deeper into the spiritual journey for sure. So thank you so much for taking a risk on me that I would be a loyal reader. <laughs> I, your enthusiasm, just, it just showed me you were just, I still remember that day and fellow tall girl, we've mentioned this before, you know, True. That, Emily is tall too, and she was jumping up and down beside her car. And we drive the same kind of car. I was like, this is not a coincidence. I have to give this person my book. So it's been amazing. And I, I wanted to start off with kind of a big question, but one that you can take as long to answer as you like. Sure. But just to tell us about you. So I've kind of given, you know, your Instagram bio and how we met and all of that. But tell us as a gender equity advisor, what are the big things you want people to know? I mean, I put three in my notes. But what do you want people to know about what you do and why? Sure. Yeah. So I've always been an advocate for girls and women and all kinds of underdogs. And 
I like to approach the issue of women's equality through systemic change. And so I'm working with companies to make them better places for women to work, women of all colors, et cetera, to work because they can be hostile workplaces. And I work in Silicon Valley, as you mentioned. So tech is quite the bro culture and quite the hotspot for sexism and overlooking women and underpaying women, especially women of color, et cetera. So I go in and I help wake up the bros and I help the women internally be braver about being their truest selves in the workplace. And so that means their true self is like, I know I have good ideas here. I know I deserve as much money as my male peers and being able to say that out loud and move that forward. And then because I talk a lot about the concepts and the research about women in the workplace and about how the isms of all kinds work in the workplace. I talk about it on stages and on podcasts like this one. And so then folks were asking me at the beginning of the pandemic, how do I become a thought leader? I also want to get my ideas out there like you. I want people to say, hey, can you come on my panel? Can you come on my podcast? Can you teach me how to be a thought leader? So that inspired my flagship course. It's now my flagship course. Back then it was just, a, oh, I'll throw a thing for the people who want to know how to do this. And so now I teach folks who feel like they have a little bit more to give, but they're not either perfect enough or they're going to wait until their ideas or their life is a little more settled until they have a few more followers, until they have a few more certificates, and then they're going to do their thing, whether it's a podcast or a movement. And so I help them get the confidence today because first of all, we don't have that much time to wait. I mean, there's a lot of critical issues that could use our attention today, whether before we're perfect, right? So that's my favorite thing that I do. And every time I offer it, there are more folks in there. And when they come out the other side, they're launching podcasts and political initiatives and they're writing op-eds in newspapers and they're doing all kinds of things that are changing the world. And so I just keep offering it. And so those are the two big buckets of what I do. I loved, I took your webinar. I think it was like two months. It was like right at the beginning of December. And it was basically about being more confident in in yourself, easy steps. And then you had the workbook to go with it. And I've just been like, and it's the way you're doing it now. It's just the way you are, the way you speak, the way you teach. It's just sort of like, here's an example. Here's what I did. Here's what somebody else did. You know, what can you do? What's your comfort level? And I loved that you know how much you you do the real talk, but it's like, also, here's what it looks like in the world. And just, you know, constantly asking us to reflect back about what is and what the definition of success is and what that can mean for you. And it's not this, this one prescribed way to go. I just, I love and appreciate that so much about you. And one of the things that I love is that you are fearless and fierce, fierce in your approach to notoriously tough topics. Like you've already brought up racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, and you offer a lot of help to women and just people, let's say people, but I know women is, you know, a focus of yours, but especially to overcome the dreaded imposter syndrome. So that's something that comes up for me yeah. a lot and why I took your course last month. Where does this strength come from in you personally? And has it always been this way for you? Or did you grow into your confidence over many years? I think I'm so into it now because I see that it can be overcome. If I was just someone who was so bold in first grade, leading all around, not caring if I got things wrong and just trying it all, I don't think I would know how to help people get that way. It would seem more innate. But because 
from the earliest days, I was an outcast in two ways. One, I was an introvert, so I outcast myself on purpose so I could go read in the corner. But two, (laughs) I was kind of nerdier than your average person, and therefore other people outcast me. So it kind of worked together. But by the time I was in college, I was so self-conscious and felt like I had nothing to share. I would sit in the college dining room or at an affinity group meeting or something, and other people would be talking. And I really wouldn't know what of the thoughts that I was saying were worthy enough to even say out loud. I would rehearse them in my head. By the time I got it right enough, the crowd had moved on to a new topic. And I just couldn't really figure it out. And so I realized... I need more of a script. And this is common for a lot of introverts. It's the social social chit chat about who knows what is really a lot harder for introverts to navigate. And the easier stuff is when you have a role. And so I started a community organization, a queer community organization in Boston where I was the leader. And so I always had a role, whether it was being on stage or walking around introducing people to each other, et cetera. But I had a role and that allowed me to step out more into my bravery and myself and just even being a person that said something. And then in my jobs, my first big job that I got was at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And on day one, my mentor slash person who was leaving the position before me said, hey, come to our huge event. It's going to be 500 people in the audience. We're going to talk about feminism and all the things you're going to introduce because it's your new job now. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> no, I can't. It was so, I was so scared. But she gave me one tip that said, Nobody cares. They're just here to hear something interesting. No one's looking at you. You have this hyper spotlight on yourself, but literally no one cares what happens in the five minute introduction that you have, five second introduction that you have to do. Just go up there and say, and get people clapping. Because the hardest part of when you're up there is when people are silent and they're looking at you. And then you're like, I have to get my voice out into the silence. And that is the hardest thing. So as you're walking up to the microphone, you're like, what a blast this is. You say anything that sounds like you and you're clapping and then the audience is clapping or you're saying, let's give a round of applause to whoever. It's basically so that you can avoid the debut. And this is true in meetings and at dinner parties and wherever. It's the first time you get your voice out there is the hardest. So if you could just get your voice out there in a tiny peep in a meeting, when you hear other people talking, you're like, yeah, yeah. Even just saying that early on, it gets your voice out there and it makes it less nervous for when you have to bring your actual idea forward. I love it. And because you're a rock star now, but I love getting that little, you know, the little nugget because we've all been there, whether you're a confident speaker now, right? anybody. I would I would say that everybody's been at a spot where they've been terrified to speak. And I find myself sure. doing this. This is what I love. So I'm like, I don't I feel nervous with like excitement and, and passion, but I'm not like, oh, I don't know if I could say. Whereas when I'm in a boardroom, I feel differently. I often feel that hesitancy in a corporate setting to just be like, how can I get that same passion I have with the things in my outside life in here? And so it might seem silly, but for everybody who can't see you right now with your like first stole on and like, you know, you've always had like fabulous fashion, megawatt smile, your brain, like, you know, you're on fire, and your whole being emits joy and excitement. So I'm thinking of, I guess, besides the things you do, or in addition to the things you do, what are the things that you do in your life that 
have brought you to this place, like this point of self-confidence. And I feel getting dressed, and I don't mean to belittle like more formal accomplishments, but one of the things I've always noticed about you is that you are fearless with that, with fashion of just like you're tall, you're bold. And um, I feel like getting dressed is one of them for me. And now that we've been at home for, what is it, 10 months, I've started doing it at home. Like today I'm wearing an evening gown and full makeup because I was just like, you know what? I just feel like doing this today. So how have you channeled your true sense of self? Like, how did you get from that introvert who was just like, oh, I can't speak. And now you're like, I'm going to wear fur and red lipstick all the time. Or, you know, (laughs) it pretty much is. Yes. Also, it's fake fur for my fellow vegans out there. (laughs) No, I agree. I think I wear things that make me feel like life is fun. And the days when I have you know, I mean, it's a pandemic. It's kind of depressing. There are days when I'm feeling like really blue and gray and just like, ugh. And so I do have a sweatpants and a turtleneck on as my outfit, right? Straight from my pajamas. Like if it's even different, I wouldn't even know. And it just feels like it affects my mood. So I use the clothes that I would want to see on other people and that I feel happy being in and that give me joy to be in them. And so people often say to me, oh, I wish I could get away with that. And it's partially shows me that folks are listening a little bit too much to what the fashion magazines or whatever are saying is in or out. And they're like, is this in enough? Should I wear it? And then also about inner confidence, right? Like, if you're wondering if you can get away with that, you're thinking of the audience judging you as opposed to the you that wants to wear this fun and beautiful to you thing, right? And I think there's really no way to win when you look at women's magazines. I do not read them anymore. They are depressing to me. They make me feel all the outsiderness, right? Too tall, too old at 42, like too all the things, right? I just look at what really what three-year-old me would have wanted to wear before I got tainted by the society that said what I should be wearing. So you'll notice it's a lot of power clashing <laughs> and uh, textures on on overdrive and like too many, quote unquote, too many jewels and things that feel costumey and fun. I love it. Just throwing away the rules, quote unquote. Those yeah. too, because I remember that too. one of the first things was like, I was a little kid and somebody saying, why are you wearing white after Labor Day? And it was just exactly. this whole, it was a, a church lady. And I'm like, I, you know, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I just, and I remember thinking that is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard in my life. And I have refused to ever follow that. That's just like a small, you know, little thing, but it's like, it's meaningless. But it's like, if someone let that weigh them down, right? As you just said, when we're thinking about what other people are going to always think instead of what brings us joy and represents who we are. I think I do get a little bit more freedom for two reasons. One, as a super tall person, 6'1", I never was the same height as any of my friends. And so I couldn't compare my body shape or size with them or what am I wearing with them because I often couldn't find clothes from the same stores that they were getting theirs from. So that unhinged me a little bit from the shoulds because I felt a little like they didn't apply to me because I was so tall and I had a little more freedom to do my own thing. Also, as a queer person, 
the queer community is a lot more flamboyant and fun and experimental and costumey in fashion. And there aren't magazines that tell queer people, queer women, what to wear, right? And But straight women have too many, like a, a thousand scripts of exactly what Jean is in and exactly how it's supposed to fit, what, all this stuff. And so I didn't look towards straight culture as my guide. So I feel, in some senses, the queer community saved me from having to believe that there was a certain way to act or dress or marry or, 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 or. Oh, I love it. And that's a, a really good point. When I think of the icons, like the people that I grew up loving, like Prince, mm-hmm. who wore diamond studded heels and capes and full makeup, and what, you know, and he was like, yes. my guy. And I can remember people in my family pointing it out saying, yeah, but he does. And I'm like, so, you know, from that young age, it was like, yeah, so that's just who this person is. But it's why is it so hard to apply to ourselves? So I love that you exemplify that and well that kind of leads me into branding I wanted to get into more about what you do with because that's like personal branding but I noticed in your last newsletter that you listed more than 30 like big name clients that you've worked with and I was I was so impressed like I I just thought you were doing you know the kind of one-on-one and small group stuff and I was like oh this is this is cool my familiarity was your work with the smaller groups that sometimes and lucky to be a part of. I wondered if you could give us a snapshot of some of the work you do with these companies and these groups of women. And what are the success stories, both personally and in a bigger corporate way? And I can't give you specific results tied to specific clients because I signed all the papers, but I can tell you some of my favorite work is helping engineering teams at some of our favorite companies that are doing interesting work in terms of 23andMe is doing really interesting work in terms of genes. I mean, also, you could probably have 20 people in here telling you that it's problematic, but people finding people in their family and knowing more about themselves, like it's just a fascinating space. So companies like that, companies that are doing big data stuff like Splunk, companies that are in health tech and ed tech and all of these other spaces, the engineering teams are usually mostly dudes. And I mean, 90% or more. And mostly white and Asian dudes. And the white dudes are usually at the tippy top. And Asian dudes also hit a sort of glass ceiling themselves. But they are generally at the top. And so I help those companies. I go in and it's a huge table. This was in person. But so when I say I go in, it's now on Zoom. A huge table of 25 engineering managers and leaders who are all dudes, white and Asian dudes. And I help them address their quote unquote dumb questions about bringing in more women, more underrepresented minorities into the tech space. I honestly thought it was going to be annoying at first because my friendship circle is not filled with people who are starting with such basics of like, should are women as good at tech? And those kinds of questions that I thought were in the past, but I love answering these questions because in a simple, graceful way, I can help the gentleman leading tech understand how good for business having a more diverse group in terms of gender and race and all the things is for their business. It's, of course, the right thing to do, but it's great for business. 
So I love going in and and answering those questions. I also love going into an all straight C-suite and helping them answer their quote unquote dumb questions about how to be more inclusive for the queer and trans community. I just helped two companies create policies for non-binary employees and make the workplaces better for folks who don't identify with male or female boxes. And so if your business just says, hey, please apply here, are you a man or a woman on the way in the door? You're going to lose out on a huge number of non-binary folks who don't want to work in a workplace where they have to choose one of the boxes. And it's an ever-growing contingent, especially in California, of folks who are just gender-free and done with the whole gender binary. So that's really fun, cutting-edge work for me. I also really love meeting with women's groups who, and women in engineering and or women in tech companies who get overlooked and underpaid and underpromoted and helping them understand that it's not their fault. They all come in saying, what can I do better? And the truth is we could all do something a little better in the workplace, right? Men could, women could, et cetera. Sure, let's beef up those skills. Let's make ourselves a little more confident so that at least we're not leaving ourselves behind. But the truth is helping those women realize the best thing they can possibly do for their careers is work together to create policies in the companies that don't let sexism take root there. So policies in the company that say we need to hire X number of women. It's not about one woman or two women leaning in, blasting through the glass ceiling. It's about all of the women, all of the non-white bros rising together in the company and a lot of times you need the policy changes. So getting in there with the policy, I also like to do that and help the companies change there. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I, I get the sense that you're even now just how you're talking about it with, with me and with our listeners is that's your approach also when you're working with these companies to just be like upfront and really real about it and explaining it that just what you have. Yeah, I mean, I use the words bro. I use the words queer and trans. I use words that make their eyes kind of pop open and their hair blow back. It's de- <laughs> I can't translate anymore. I could. I don't want to translate anymore. It's just, it's a waste of my time and my psychic energy to not bring my whole self to the table. And my whole self is rather flip. And guess what? Some companies would rather have someone who is translating and they can find them. There's plenty of people who will translate, but I'm here to give companies the real talk. And that's the only way I ever want to show up in the boardroom. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, it's the only way to go because there is then otherwise this veil of like, well, that's over there and we're over here, right? Like it's just not an authentic conversation. There's a book I was texting with another friend this morning and it's called The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia oh, I, I was going to say, because I know your anti-racism resource list is extensive and helpful. And that's one of the things I appreciated about the book. She just, t- I feel like I'm sitting with a friend talking about, and a lot of it is stuff that I know, and I'm sure you know a ton of it too, but I'm thinking it's actually a really great resource for people to hear it just in plain and simple terms, like everyday language like it's not this other thing for other people that we can't talk or or whisper about like you know people used to say cancer or what you know things like that and I'm not trying to glorify it but it's like let's just be real and honest and upfront about what we're talking about because it's it's, to use a bad phrase like keeping it in the closet right like everybody's always been hiding behind these things also recognizing that there's fear and safety, real safety issues with coming out. And, Absolutely. And, I, you know, I don't want to dissuade any of that, but I, I particularly love your approach to just being real and upfront like that. Because I think 
that's more inclusive for everyone, including people who are really afraid to go into this topic because of broke, you know, I don't want to say just broke culture, but just we're not used to talking about it and they don't know how to talk about it. So therefore it's like, well, we can just make it more simple than we think. And so I guess looking at your resource list, which is extensive, powerful and helpful, and knowing there are ways for people to learn through reading and watching and listening. How long ago, like, is this lifelong? Did you start doing this kind of work? Was there a catalyst of some kind? There was a post you made about your brother. I think it was your brother and you working at the same place and finding out you're being paid differently. I don't know if that was a catalyst or if there was something else. I'm just curious where where this work started for you. So equal pay for equal rights, feminism stuff definitely started when we were, were 14, 15 working at the bagel shop and he was making a dollar more per hour than I was for nothing. He was not better. He was worse at the job for start. He was younger and worse at the job. And he ate all the cookie dough and the bagels for free in the back, stole them. He didn't eat them for free. He stole them. Let's use the right words here. <laughs> well, I was dutifully having been raised a girl dutifully doing all the right things and not risking stealing on the job. And so just to put that there, I should have been paid more. There should have been a total reverse of payment. But in terms of my anti-racism and when did that start? I'm white and I grew up in a predominantly white area of the country, upstate New York in the countryside. And race was not talked about in our family, which now looking back, I feel was a great disservice. I only learned about MLK and like some bad shit happened to African-Americans in the 60s. But good thing there was MLK and now we're good. That was basically like for real all that I got from my teachers and my family. And then I got to college and luckily I went to a anti-racist feminist program at a women's college. So I went to Simmons College in Boston and the women's studies professors there happened to be multiracial and totally committed to intersexual feminism. And they luckily didn't let me just think that feminism was all the things that white ladies cared about, like breaking the glass ceiling, which is important, but not obviously the only thing that women in the world have to do. And I took a class, African-American women's studies class, and the professor said to everyone, a majority black classroom, write about your race and the messages you got about it when you were little and your ancestors. This is totally horrifying, but I tell it because I think it helps me to hear other white women's stories of like getting it. So edit this out if it's annoying and you hate it. But the truth is I went to her to her after class and I was like, well, I don't have a race. So like, should I do a different project? Like, should I write about my gender? Like, I did not understand how I had a race to write about. And thankfully for her, she did the professorial and emotional labor of telling me that I had a race and to think about it and like what it meant to be a white person. She gave me books that never thought about the race. And so anyways, I wish that my family had taught me not only about the quote unquote plight of African-Americans, that was a current problem, but also how I could be a white ally in action. Because not knowing that I committed, I'm sure countless harm and undue harm, like not knowing about it and just walking around with my white privilege. So that was the tip of the iceberg in that class. And then I took a course when I was right out of college that was a famous course in Cambridge called like white people 
stopping racism or something. That's not the real name, but it was a group of just white people interrogating the power and privilege in our lives and how we could use it for good and how we had been using it for bad. Cause you're either using it for good to make the world a better place for folks of color and for everyone, or you, if you're just neutral, you're making it worse by letting it continue. That was a big moment for me of realizing that. It was one of those moments where once you see it, you can't really unsee it. There's still so much work to do. There was still so much work to do. There still is so much work to do. But for me, it was a moment where I could no longer look at my feminist agenda as three things that benefited white ladies, as opposed to looking at what is the quote unquote most vulnerable women around the globe. Like what's the deal with what women numerically need the most and also women who are far less privileged need the most. That's where that started. And it's been a part of my activism since my 20s. And what I realized in the spring of this year was that there were a whole host of, this was before George Floyd's murder and all of that, the um, civil rights movement that started in June, was that there were a lot of feminists and queer people who were still white feminists and white queers who were still fighting the one issue feminism, one issue queerness, which was the white, the white issues. And so I hosted a seminar for 200 feminists and queers, mostly white, some also Asian, to talk about how to get on the ramp, on the path to anti-racism. And it was my most popular event that I've thrown and the most terrifying. I mean, when you were talking about being yourself and talking and I am bold and just use whatever language and I'll clean it up later. But once I'm talking about race, it's harder and there's more threat of doing harm. And I'm more uh, afraid of doing harm in the race space. And also I realize that's, I'm called to use my voice, which is not always perfect to show other white people that you can do more good than bad by taking imperfect steps forward. And that's where the anti-racist list came from. It's an on-ramp to women of color and folks of all genders of color who are really doing that work, who are the experts in that work, who should be getting paid for that work. But I know that my voice speaks to a unique audience of white folks who aren't ready to pick up three-inch thick Black feminist book, right? They're like, read Bell Hooks yet. They're not here for Audre Lorde yet. They can't do Patricia Hill Collins. Like, they're just not there yet. And so mine is getting people on that path. And then that anti-racist list is the list for the future. That approach, and it's funny because this podcast is called My Yoga Audio, but a lot of the topics, and I believe yoga takes many <laughs> different forms. It's like the work to get in tune with ourselves. I call myself the gateway yoga teacher because I go for the basics. And it's just like, I just want to introduce people to this. And we're not going to talk about handstands and we're not going to talk about contorting yourself in these circular positions and all the things that make a yogi right and doing things. The right. It's just the basics. And I kind of feel like that's what you just said too. It's like, this is the access point where people can start. And then there's a resource list. There's so much, so many more places they can go after that. Heather, oh, that's perfect. And I, well, then I guess I kind of reversed the the order of the things that I was going to ask you, like just talking about women in the workforce and some upsetting statistics. We know that more than 50% of women 
comprise the workforce. Well, the population of the United States, but also the workforce. And we're paid anywhere from 77 cents on the dollar. And we know for a long time this was justified because of the way households were gendered, putting the male breadwinner in a category all its own. But we also know now that the COVID-19 pandemic has unfortunately resulted in this massive wave of women leaving the workforce, either to be able to care for children, aging family members. It's just impacted women more so than men. What else have you been learning about patterns and shifts that could potentially help and encourage women in the workforce right now? I don't know if that exists, but I know you always have this on women in the workplace, and I know that's a fairly recent statistic. So I don't know what you've been finding or what you've been hearing about the women in your groups or the companies you work for. Those statistics were not a surprise to me, and they probably won't be to any of your listeners who have any caretaking duties or responsibilities whatsoever. As a child-free person, I have avoided the crunch of being a child care provider and working at the same time. But my clients are really barely holding on. I mean, teaching even one child, let alone different grades of children who are maybe in kindergarten on Zoom or maybe, you know, in the middle of their high school trying to get grades where they can go to college. Like every point of that spectrum is is rough for a parent to have to do. Parents who are not teachers, right, are, are now suddenly becoming <laughs> teachers. Plus, they have to continue being the chief financial officer at their firm, or they have to continue being, you know, the only person caring for their entrepreneurial venture, right? And so it doesn't surprise me that women had to choose, and you're not going to, you have to choose your family, not your job, when the other person in your family, if it's a two-person man-woman household, is at work, right? As we see from the statistics, it's never a question of, is he going to be the one that stays home? Because given most he's make more than most she's, that you said you mentioned those data, like it doesn't financially make sense for the man to be the person that leaves the workforce. What I'm helping companies do is get their heads wrapped around something they should have wrapped their heads around decades ago, but the flexible workplace, it's not a new idea. (laughs) You shouldn't have to be at your desk from nine to five, unless you're a receptionist at a place where people come nine to five and you have to receive them. But otherwise, if you're a knowledge worker and a tech worker, like most of my clients are and entrepreneurs, You have a certain amount of things to get done in a week, in a month. You have deliverables. Do them when you can. Do them any hours that make sense. And then I help companies set frames around certain times of day that people have to be available, ideally for like very important team meetings, but also shifting away from synchronous time we have to be together into asynchronous modes of communication, which luckily there's all the technology in the world right now, including some of my favorite clients that are letting people communicate asynchronously. And so we're in this funny point where people, mostly men in charge at companies who have a wife managing most of the children and the families at home, the men are further away from the truth of what is happening. And so they are keeping company policies the same that are not good for people who need a more flexible workplace. One thing that has happened during COVID is because there is so much to do now in the modern family from childcare to elder care to brother care, right? All kinds of care. Men are taking on a little bit more of that. And so it's showing them 
it's showing people of all genders. I mean, women, if you know this, but it's now showing men that flexible workplaces are a lot more necessary than it seemed they were in the past. Very small silver lining, like in terms of oh, my corporate job. Yeah. They had told us, you will never work from home. This position will never be. Well, <laughs> you know, we've been doing it for 10 months because we have to. We made it work. So now they're rethinking the whole thing for when we can go back. Right. Everybody wants that option because we've proven to them that it can be done. And for a variety of reasons, going to the dentist, going to the doctor, just taking care of yourself, like your own health as a single person, never mind a family or extended family or whatever you've got going on in your life. That flexibility is so, so key. And so I wanted to also, you mentioned it before. I wanted to go back to it briefly. Your future thought leader program is starting up again in March. I know you've already got a waiting list. We're in, you know, we're in January. What is in store for your future thought leaders? I know you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but wow, what's it all about? Yeah. So it's actually, we pushed it back to June. So that's good news. I'm doing a different program before then that's a little more urgent. But the one that the f- future thought leader is folks from all industries who are, they have some amount of accomplishment in their field. Like maybe they are a mid-level scientist. Maybe they are a lawyer and they have a specific niche. Maybe they are a woman in tech who knows a lot about this or that. So it's all genders. People just need to be a feminist. And so it's people coming together to learn how to step into their light and stop playing small. So no small feat. So we do a bunch of stuff on imposter syndrome for sure right off the bat. And then I give people the concrete things they need in order to step into the light. So it's how to get in touch with a journalist if you want to start talking about the ideas that you have, that you see your colleagues and your peers getting quoted on. And you're like, for your folks, it would be like, how did that person get quoted in yoga journal? I know a lot too. Like, I wish I could be one of the people that was consulted about this issue on back health or yoga in California or whatever. And so it's helping you figure out how to hone your voice, hone your audience and get connected to the the media opportunities and how to get your writing out there, how to get your voice out there on podcasts, how to get paid speaking gigs, depending on if that's something that you're going for. Yeah. And it's how to rise above the fray in your field. And so if everyone is talking about the future of your field or industry in a certain way, and you just see people regurgitating stuff online that's the similar stuff. What's a new perspective that you can have about your field? How can you be someone who synthesizes what's going on in your field or industry and really brings a new, new perspective forward? And so you don't have to necessarily be a Nobel in future thought leader, it's couch to 5k. So I'm not looking to help people who are already a Nobel prize winning scientist or writer. (laughs) I'm helping everyday people who, you know, run a small business or, you know, a, a yoga teacher of this many years or who are this kind of politician or this kind of tech worker. And they have a unique perspective on how things can be done or should be done going forward. And it's getting more attention for their ideas. No one can do what you can do quite like you can do. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, but just tweaking it a little bit, you know. uh. And speaking it to your people as you, right? There are already people going to companies and talking about gender. But is there someone who talks about it in the way that I do? 
So far, I'm hearing from the market, no, they're paying me. <laughs> they're also paying other people, but there's room for so many of us to bring our unique perspectives and backgrounds to the fore. The room for everyone. That's one of my favorite sayings. Yes. There's room for all of us to make our, our dreams come true. Yes. On that note, I kind of, I like to offer resources to people. So I know they can go to your your website and we'll put those in the show notes and we'll be posting those on social media as well so that they can tap into you and to your resources and everything that you offer. But just kind of off the top, some of the brave, fearless, badass women, famous, infamous, otherwise maybe we don't know who they are. We need to know who they are, who have inspired like people doing great things in the world that we need to read or we need to watch their video or their podcast. Friend of mine, Joya, runs a yoga studio called Wild Ember. And she's a white woman, but she's running this yoga studio. It's totally body positive, totally anti-racist, queer and trans friendly. And she is very upfront about being committed to those values. So if you have a yoga business and you want to see how someone's doing it bravely, imperfectly, et cetera, Wild Ember, you can find her on Instagram. So she's really inspiring that way. For those of you who are white women in yoga, and you're trying to figure out like, what's the next step? There are two women who I know of who are leading, actually three, who are leading white women in anti-racism in very, it's like hand-holding, not shaming you, and also making you accountable to yourself and to the world and to your ancestors. And so Nima Mohammed has something called Anti-Racist Academy. It is mind-blowing. Then we have Accomplice Academy, which is by Mira Stern. And then we have Jen Wynn, who leads white executives in their path forward into being an anti-racist leader in our modern-day multicultural world. Those three are off the chain in terms of going deeper with anti-racism and keeping you from making gaffes that are avoidable because in your heart, you're like, I don't mean any harm, but I don't know how to not do harm. <laughs> so that's for, that's that. And then there's one more book for white women called Raising Our Hands. It just came out this year. Her, the author's name is Jenna Arnold. And she is a fancy straight white lady who does a lot of yoga. And she is really smart about the very first steps into the anti-racist journey. And so if that's what you or someone in your family needs, she's a really good person to go to for that. But yeah, absolutely follow me on IG. And I, my business coach tells me I elevate other people too much and I should shine brighter myself. But if you want to see a whole host of other badass feminist people, anti-racist and queer liberation folks, I elevate people all the time. Yeah, that's true. On Instagram, even on, on LinkedIn too. Like the people you're working with, I see that too. I'm always smiling and, you know, learning about other people that you're working with. And that's the thing that I love. The people who take your courses become those leaders. And then you're like pumping them up on your page. And it's like, oh, I need to know about this person. And, you know, you can see it coming full circle. And I love how positive that results. One thing I wanted to ask you, because now you've brought up our listeners. Thank you so much for curating a list that our listeners would appreciate regarding yoga because I kind of saved this question for last because I don't know whether or not you actually practice yoga, you know, physically or otherwise. 
and yoga means so many things and shows up in the world and in our lives in different ways. What does yoga mean to you and how has it or maybe has not impacted your life? Yeah, it really has. I took my first yoga class in England when I was living in London in 1997. And it was basically just Indian British folks who were doing yoga at the time. And my friend who was Indian brought me there. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I feel so great. So I did that for a while. Then I came back to the US and did Kundalini yoga for a while. And then I fell in love with Baptiste and other kinds of hot yoga for a while. And now living in Sacramento, I have two yoga studios, one Soul Fire, which is a brick and mortar, which is on and off, depending on COVID. And then Wild Ember, which I already mentioned to you, which is my digital, she's all digital yoga studio. And I also... There are many branches of yoga. Those are all like the physical ones, I guess. And then Ayurveda is like a sister of yoga, right? Okay, I see you nodding. So I would say I have a crush on Ayurveda. (laughs) I don't know enough. We're definitely not in a relationship yet, but I'm experimenting with tongue scraping and ashwagandha. (laughs) And so I'm getting curious about Ayurveda. Oh, you have to meet Michelle Malman. Marla Hand, sorry, I know two Michelles with similar last names. She was get on number, oh my gosh, was it five? I think she was episode five, Michelle Marlahan. And so she's michellemarlahan.com and she does grief counseling. She does Ayurvedic counseling. And in the episode, she talks about Ayurveda, just simple. And that's probably because I know you're kind of like vegan-ish. Like 95%, except for when there's a cupcake with funfetti sprinkles. <laughs> Well, and Ayurveda is does really prioritize that, like more vegetarian rather than vegan. So there is a lot of milk and recipes, but they have a lot of vegan. Re- and it's it's just so good. It's sort of simple ingredients and spices and vegetables that taste really good without. So it would be right. I feel like it would be right up your alley. And I know we're about to close up, but I wanted to ask you kind of what you're wishing and planning for and hoping for in 2021. It's, you know, the start of a new year, a new administration. There's like all these things going on. So what's, what's on your horizon? I really want to see people who have long been underdogs stepping into their power and their voices. I don't want to have to sit around while white boys lean in and take the mic and take all the money (laughs) see those of us who care too much, as one of my future thought leaders says, I don't want to see us sitting on the silence because we don't have a perfect answer or a PhD level retort or business plan, etc. I want to see more of us cheering each other on as we stumble forward with imperfect thoughts and ideas and plans. I love that. That last sentence was like a perfect, I'm going to listen to this back in the replay. That's going to be one of the quotes <laughs> for this episode because it was such a joy and I learned from you and, and just, yeah, imbibe joy from you every time we meet, even in this virtual format. It's so wonderful to see your face and hear your voice. And I want to continue this conversation. Maybe we have to have a second episode with you. And as soon as it's safe, I would love to meet yes. a person so we can kombucha or a tea or whatever and just yeah celebrate i want to thank uh, you for being on the show today making this time 
and just offering so much of your thought leadership, your vision, your wisdom with our listeners. It's so appreciated. And to our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. We're going to connect you in the show notes and on Instagram and on LinkedIn with all of Femily's information where you can get in touch with her and learn about her courses. And we'll be posting some photos of her and some of examples of the workshops that she's done where you can get involved and, and learn more and share these resources. So if you found this episode really helpful and you'll be like, oh, I know a company that needs to hear about Family, send them the, a link to this podcast. Or I know a yogi who really needs to hear about doing this work in their studio because they're on their way to getting out of you know bad habits and they want to learn more. What, whatever it is, if you find this information useful for yourself or someone else, please share it. You can like, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. And also there's a page on the My Yoga Audio website where I list just special Maya perks. So these are products and services that I only know and use and love myself. And they just help keep the podcast going with production costs and that sort of thing. So if you feel so called to support in that way, but mostly support our guests through their work, through your listenership, and just being a part of this community. And so until next time, my friends, thank you for being here. It's always a good time to have your mind on the map.